Sheepdog Nation, welcome. You are in for a treat with this episode. This episode, I will be interviewing the one and only Mr. Jay Dobbins. And if you don't know who he is, stop this right now, Google his ass, and then come back because I'm telling you, he is essentially famous in the law enforcement community and uh, he is a real badass. But you are going to learn on this episode how truly humble of a man this guy is. And I just had such a wonderful time speaking with him. It was actually one of the most long interviews that I've ever had. And um, I'm really excited for you to dive in. I just wanted to let you know, first and foremost, that this episode is sponsored by the Sheepdog family. If you are not a part of the Sheepdog family and you are a law enforcement officer, I don't know what the hell you're doing. This is a group that is Leo only. We have a group completely off social media. And this is transforming officers. I just had an officer the other day uh, get promoted to detective. Every single week, it looks like it just seems like somebody is getting promoted. They're getting a new job. They're transferring departments. They are reaching new goals. And this is a one of a kind program for law enforcement officers. And if it is, if you have any interest in this, go hit the link below and join us in the Sheepdog family. And without further ado, here is today's show. Sheepdog Nation, I'm so excited to introduce to you the man, the myth, the legend, the guy that you have all been messaging me about ever since I posted that I had a conversation with him, um, Mr. Jay Dobbs, Dobbins. Jay, can you introduce yourself for the people who don't know who you are? Sure. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show and hello to your audience. And uh, I'm glad that uh, we're getting some attention for our conversation. We uh, are. <laughs> yeah. My name is Jay Dobbins. I was an ATF agent for uh, 27 years and um, that's me. Uh, like the, the introduction you gave me was very flattering. Uh, I'm not sure that I can live up to all that, but thank you. <laughs> I think you can. Everybody, everybody is stoked. I'm telling you, my my inbox has been flooded since I posted on Instagram that we had a conversation. So everyone is very much looking forward to hearing what Jay has to say to Sheepdog Nation. Well, so I think for me, and I think people will realize as they listen to this, um, for me, wisdom is something that has always come to me right after I needed it. Yes. Uh, I was never smart in the moment. I was always smart after I had a chance to think about what I should have done, what I should have said, how I should have acted. Mm. Um, so, um, so anything that I impart is probably based on my own mistakes and having a chance to like look at them in hindsight and figure out a better way to handle that situation. Yes. Such, that's such good. I mean, it's so true too. It's so true. But you know what? The thing is, Jay, is like some people, they don't, they don't put two and two together. Unfortunately, we have some people who they, they don't get smarter. They don't, they don't, <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't find that wisdom that comes to them after a situation and they keep doing the same shit over and over again. And, and that's um, unfortunate, but I guarantee that a lot of you listening to Sheepdog Nation, you're here because you're growing and expanding your mind. And so I'm proud of you for all of that. You know, Jay, for me, like I, I got, uh, uh, maybe smarter, um, at, at, and if not smarter, I at least found more peace in my life, in my personal life, when I started conducting hard self-assessments of me mm. on everything, on my relationships, on how I treated people, how I looked at myself, 
Um, and I'm not, uh, I learned not to be a person that blames others or makes excuses. Mm. Um, when I learned to own my flaws and my mistakes and the things that I don't like about my character or my personality, when I learned to own those things, um, they didn't necessarily make them any easier to live with, but they brought peace to my life in at least trying to understand them and be honest about who I am. Uh, uh, and it's, it's easy to get excited about the good things we do and the things we like about ourselves. It's very hard to uh, be transparent about the things that we don't like about ourselves and our flaws and our failures and our mistakes. <clears throat> I learned to do that. Um, I'd like to think that I got smarter, but actually all it did was it just brought some peace to me. Mm. Mm. That's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. That's so powerful. Um, Jay, so listen, I want to I wanna kind of get into this a little bit. Like, how did VJ Dobbins, like, how did you start? Like, did you always know you wanted to be a cop? Like, how, how did you get going and what you got going in? Well, you know, no. To, uh, the short answer is no. I um, always thought I was going to be a football player. Mm -hmm. uh, that as, as a kid, um, I loved football, grew to love football. I had a very successful college football career. Um, I thought and believed I was going to be a professional football player. Uh, at 21 or 22 years old, I had my life figured out. I knew how it was going to go. I was going to play professional football. I was going to be in the league for 10 or 12 years, maybe go to some pro bowls. If I was lucky enough to be on a good team, uh, play in a super bowl. Ultimately I'd retire healthy, happy. And I'd sit uh, at the bar in some restaurant that had my name on it and uh, manage my investments and sign autographs and, and tell mm -hmm. stories about what an amazing football player I was. Mm -hmm. uh, the reality of it is, is that I wasn't good enough. I did everything I could uh, to prepare myself to play football professionally. And back to what we said earlier in the opening of the conversation, being uh, honest with myself, I just, I wasn't good enough. There's no one to blame. There's no excuse to make. I can't say like, oh, well, I hurt my knee or I hurt my shoulder or I had a bad back or that coach didn't like me or I didn't get a fair chance. None of those things applied. I just wasn't good enough. And at 22 years old, when everything that I had planned for crashed and fell apart, like all of us in life, I had to hit the reset button on my goals and my life and like where I wanted to go and what I wanted to be because it wasn't going to go according to plan. Mm. And so how did you end up working undercover? Well, as I was sulking and <laughs> feeling sorry for myself and pathetic and feeling like the world had not treated me fair, mm -hmm. uh, which I hate that word fair, because there is no such thing as fair. Mm. Uh, not, not in our world, not in the, you know, the, the world of the audience that's listening to this. There is no such thing as fair. Fair is where you go to ride a roller coaster or put a ribbon on a cow. Mm. Uh, there's no such thing as fair. Um, and if you expect things to be fair, if you expect to be treated fair, if you expect life to be fair to you, slap yourself in the face right now because it's not going to happen, right? Mm. But so I'm at this point in my life and I'm feeling uh, just very pathetic and cheated and um, 
at the time, this is the mid eighties. Now the Miami vice television show was very popular. Um, and, and for, I know there's a, a younger element to your audience out there as well. Not the movie, not Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx. Oh, come on. <laughs> the old television show. Right. And yep. I saw Sonny Crockett, like wearing this Hugo boss suit and driving a Lamborghini around South beach and meeting with these glamorous kingpins and going into mansions and negotiating for a ton of cocaine and stripper models, bringing them martinis and sitting on their lap at the side of a pool. And I was like, man, you know what? I might not be a very good football player, but I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah. Um, and you know, for me, I was never motivated by money. I never chased the dollar. I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad was a carpenter. My dad pounded nails for a living. My mom was a house cleaner. My mom scrubbed people's toilets for a living that didn't want to scrub their own toilets. Mm -hmm. That's the, the, I grew up in a very work first, play second. Uh, I, that, that, was, that, that was what I learned. And so um, I, I wasn't interested in chasing money. What I wanted is that when my alarm clock went off in the morning and I put my feet on the ground, I wanted to be excited about what I was doing. I wanted to give something back. I wanted to make a contribution. I wasn't sure exactly what that was going to be yet, but I wanted to uh, do something that mattered to the greater good. And then, you know, this, this caught my attention and it intrigued me. And I thought like, man, I wonder if I can do that. I wonder if I could be any good at that. And I chased it. I just chased the new dream. Mm. And like, what did you do? Do you mind just telling us really quickly? Like what, what did you just apply? And like, that was it? Yeah. Um, you know, people ask me all the time, well, how do you get started? You know, and, and my advice is consistent. If you want to be in this profession, start applying, apply to every agency, every department that if you get offered a job or if you were employed there, you could be happy at and then get your foot in the door and start gaining experience and gaining training and, and uh, having your ears and eyes open to the veterans out there who uh, the, the great veterans in our job love to help young agents and officers. They mm -hmm. love to like impart their wisdom and tell you about the mistakes they made so that you don't have to repeat them mm -hmm. and learn. And ultimately, you may not retire from the same agency or department that hired you. Um, people move, they, they figure out what they're good at or they, or they have an interest in some area that maybe an agency or department has more special specialization or expertise in and they lateral and they move, but get, just get started. Yeah. Get put in the door somewhere and start working and learning. Absolutely, great advice. And so, you know, that's what I did. I, um, I ended up getting hired uh, by ATF, which was uh, such a blessing for me because ATF uh, had then, and I still believe has the most dynamic undercover program and undercover officers in federal law enforcement. Mm. And that's what, that's, that's what drew me to ATF. When I, when I, when I was applying, I didn't know exactly 
what I wanted to do. And I was applying to all the big name agencies because that's, that's what I knew. I applied to the FBI, I applied to DEA, I applied to secret service and uh, actually a secret service uh, agent. He said, did you apply to ATF? You want to work undercover? Did you apply to ATF? And I was like, I, I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know, you know, that there was alcohol, tobacco and firearms. I, it, it, I, I, I wasn't aware of it. And so I started researching it and I started looking at what they did. And, and it was just, it was such, it, it was, a, it was a blessing by mistake because um, they had an amazing undercover program with an amazing history and incredible uh, operatives and, and cases. And man, it was just, it was so perfect for me. It was, it was perfect by mistake. Mm. That's, I love that. I love that. Cause that's how a lot of things happen. I think that, you know, anybody out there that that's faith-based or Christian-based, or I don't care what your, what your belief is, but um, you know, that saying, like, if you want to make God laugh, tell him what your plans are. That's the truth. Isn't and it's like, it, like, it just doesn't go, life doesn't go the way we, want it orchestrated to go. If it did, we would never have challenges. We would never have setbacks. We would never make mistakes. Everything would fall in place. It would be beautiful and perfect. And um, we'd enter into relationships that were, you know, where you are running towards each other in a field of daisies. Mm -hmm. uh, man, this life isn't like that. Life's hard and it's a struggle. And it goes back to that earlier statement that life's not fair. Don't expect it to be. You're going to have to fight and overcome obstacles and people are going to stand in your way. And people are going to jump on your bandwagon and then off your bandwagon and then back on your bandwagon, all based on where you're at at any given point in your life. That's just how it is. Isn't that the truth? Right. So Jay, just to, just to kind of go back around, cause I, I want to talk about this. So you, you saw on TV, what you really liked, Miami vice old school. <laughs> and, and so tell me, can you tell me like what, you saw like you could like stand around and, and be by the pool and all these hot babes. All right. Can you fill me in from there? Well, the Hollywood creates this uh, false uh, narrative of what our life is like. Uh, they, mm -hmm. they, it's, it's on television and movies. Uh, our life in, in Copland is glamorous and it's sexy those of us out there know that it's not glamorous. It's sexy. It's a nasty, bloody, dirty, vomit covered scab is mm -hmm. what it really is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that Hugo boss suit that I imagined, it was a pair of cutoff camouflage pants and a wife beater t-shirt and flip-flops. That Lamborghini was an 82 Malibu. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the ton of cocaine uh, was an eight ball that was so stepped on with baby laxative, you'd shit before you'd get high. You know, yeah. that, that sexy, glamorous uh, kingpin was some uh, nasty dude with like sores on his arms that was sitting at the end of a bar in some condemned tavern with his plumber's crack hanging out and didn't have two nickels to rub together to, to buy his next beer. Um, the, the, the mansion in Miami was a trailer park with a with a single wide like half tilted with a, some aluminum awning hanging off of it and you know the 
the stripper models that sat on Cro Sonny Crockett's lap and uh, brought them pomegranate martinis. That was like some skank with three teeth in her head and tits like sweat socks with rocks in the toes. <laughs> and when I experienced it and when it turned out to be something so different than what Hollywood had led me to believe, mm -hmm. I still loved it. I loved what I was doing. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that it wasn't sexy or that it wasn't glamorous. I, I loved every single day getting up and going to work and jumping into that environment. That's awesome. Not everybody would love that though. <laughs> I, I don't think I would. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I think that there's so many different aspects to the job of policing. Mm -hmm. And I think like the key for any of us is to find what you're good at, what you have a passion for, and then go try to be amazing at that. There's, yeah. there's so many tools in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. um, undercover work is just one. Yeah. Um, we both know um, lawmen and women who never ever dreamed of or wanted to get out of a marked unit or get out of uniform. They absolutely love patrolling the streets and yep. being the real police. Yeah. That, that's amazing. I love that. And if that's where your passion is, and if you're going to spend 20, 25, 30 years doing that, do it and just mm -hmm. be amazing at it. Well, we definitely need to dive into that. Okay. So you like it. So you liked it dirty. So can we talk about that? Like what you grew up, it seems like in a pretty good household. Like your parents, you know, they, they it doesn't sound like you came from like the wrong side of the street, the railroad track. So would tell me about that. Like, no, I didn't. Um, I, I, I mean, I didn't grow up. I, I grew up in, I, I had an ideal childhood. Mm. I had great parents. I had like, we weren't, we didn't have a lot. We weren't wealthy, but um, I had a baseball glove. I had a bike. Uh, we went on vacation in the summer. Uh, my parents stayed together. Um, it's not like uh, my dad was an alcoholic or kicked the shit out of us or anything. Like it wasn't, I didn't have any of that. Um, I grew up in a very simple, easy uh, life as a kid. So I think uh, to be successful uh, in an undercover role, like so much of that would, for me was learned and was by studying the enemy uh, mm. and being a student uh, of uh, the suspects and the people I was working on because it was not an environment that I was raised in. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't anything that I saw growing up and was just an easy transition to. Right. Uh, and so I, that's what I tried to do. I tried to be uh, a student of the profession, a student of the trade craft and, and, and study all the things about the people that I was working on so that I could, uh, uh, fit in and, and mimic it to some extent. Can we talk about that for a minute? This, this is a very big learning moment. Sheepdog Nation, I just want you to listen to this for a second because you're listening to one of the best, if not the best undercover cop letting, sitting here telling you, we have to take a step back, right? Wouldn't you say, Jay, we have to take a step back and we have to learn. We have to study. We are not always the best. When we come out, we don't know anything. Hell, we don't know anything for a long time. And I think... You know, I really think what you just said is so vital. You, you're, you're saying, I studied. I, not only did you study probably people who were successful like doing what you wanted to be doing, but you were definitely, you were studying the enemy. I mean, that's, that is so key. And I think sometimes, 
you know, we get so caught up as like police officers, road cops, we get so caught up and I've got to be tactical and I've got to have all my tactical shit. Okay, wait a minute. Why don't we just go and like watch? Let's just go watch what, you know, the people who we're looking for, let's go watch them. Fuck what we look like and have on ourselves and all this shit. Let's just go pay attention. So I think um, as lawmen and law women, our preparation goes beyond uh, going to the range. It goes beyond uh, uh, close quarters combat training. It goes beyond uh, knowledge of the laws mm. and policies and procedures and techniques and tactics. Um, I think I think we have to be students of the environments that we work in um, and uh, understand or try to do our best to understand uh, the worlds of the people that we're contacting. Um, and, and not even just from an undercover perspective, uh, from a human perspective mm-hmm. of, of when you're talking to someone, when you stop someone, when you're interviewing people, when you're interviewing suspects, when you're interviewing witnesses or victims, um, uh, for, for law enforcement, for us, well, let me back up a little bit. In the criminal community, um, violence and intimidation is power. That's where they derive their power from. Um, in the law enforcement community, for us, knowledge is power. The more we know about anything or everything, the more we know about the people we're working on, mm-hmm. uh, either as individuals or their culture or uh, their neighborhood, their families, all those things. Man, that's, that's super important to us and it shouldn't be neglected. It shouldn't be passed off or um, uh, just pushed aside. It should be something that, like, if we truly want to be great at this job, we should embrace it and study those things. Mm. Such a good point. Now, I have to ask you something. When, okay, so did you just, can you tell me a little bit about your law enforcement career? Did you, like, go directly into the feds and go into cover? Did you spend any time on the road? Like, what? tell me a little bit about that. Well, I'll tell you, uh, actually, now, uh, for me now, it's an entertaining story. It's a funny story. At the time, it wasn't very st- funny, right? Okay. <laughs> I get hired on a Monday. Um, on a Thursday, four days after I got hired, uh, I was taken hostage and shot. Um, I uh, uh, made some mistakes in an arrest scenario, uh, chasing a suspect who had gotten away from us and uh, continued the pursuit with no backup, no help around, all those things, and uh, got cornered by a suspect and was shot point blank in the back. Um, the bullet, it went in my back, it went through my lung, it narrowly missed my heart, it exited my chest. And four days on the job, I was laying in the garbage and dog shit of a trailer park, bleeding to death. There, there was blood coming out of my chest, like you're holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose. Uh, wow. Four days. You know, and I'm like, like most of us, uh, I know at least with the feds, but most of us, we get paid every two weeks. Um, I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. I hadn't made it through my first week, and I was dying in the dirt, bleeding to death. Um, and so I had a pretty, um, a pretty crazy start to my mm-hmm. career, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I survived that. And um, so I'm in the hospital and I'm recovering. And uh, like, like uh, attorneys, like uh, like personal injury attorneys were lining up, almost taking a number in the hallway to come and talk to me. 
And they were coming in saying, kid, you know what a million dollars looks like? And I had no idea what a million dollars looks like. Still don't know what a million dollars looks like, right? How about $5 million? No clue, right? And these attorneys were saying, you were put in a situation that you were not yet prepared for. You were not yet trained for. The government has assumed a huge liability for letting you be in that situation. You tell me how much money you want and I will go get it. They will sign a check for whatever you say and there will be no dispute because they know how guilty they are. And all I could think of was get the hell out of here. I didn't want the money. I didn't take the job for the money. Mm. Um, all I wanted to do was get healthy and get well and go back to work, uh, to be quite honest. Um, I was in Arizona at the time, at the time of the shooting. I transferred to Chicago. Um, and a year later, I was in another shooting there where I got shot and run over by a car during an undercover deal with some gangbangers for some machine guns. Holy uh, shit. So two shootings within a year, like within my first year. Uh, so then did you become a- Run over. Um, and so I, like people ask me like, um, like, man, didn't that, didn't that send the signal to you? You know, what it did um, is it empowered me. Mm -hmm. It like, I walked around like I was bulletproof. Like mm -hmm. I thought I was invincible. You know, I am, um, you know, like I brainwashed myself every day to think that I was the baddest cat on the streets. Um, I like that. Yeah. No, no, no. I, okay. So can we, I just have to say this, you say that you brainwash yourself. That's, that's actually, and I know, you know, probably know this now, but you know, that's like they, they, Tony Robbins has a term for that. I can't even think about it, but like, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. So look how you turned up to You literally ta taught yourself, told yourself and created that reality for yourself. That's fucking awesome. We need more cops doing shit like that. Well, you know, ha having uh, had a violent experience and, you know, for lack of better terms, a near-death experience right off the bat. Mm -hmm. um, I knew how quickly things can go bad and get nasty. And um, I realized, like, it doesn't matter how big or tough or strong you are. Um, you know, like, I was, I, I was physically fit. I was strong. I was all those things. And when you got a 140 pound tweaker hanging on your back with a gun to your head, he's in control. He's the one running that situation. He's dictating what happens um, mm -hmm. in, my, in my case, right? Mm -hmm. A gun um, is the great equalizer. It turns a pussy into a freaking hero, right? Mm -hmm. Out on the streets. Mm -hmm. um, and so like getting shot and then getting shot again, um, were two of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, uh, in spite of the, the physical trauma and the injuries, uh, because it helped refine my mindset. It helped, it helped, it, it proved to me, man, you better be ready, dude, every dang day. Um, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if you're stopping for a cup of coffee on your way into work, you better be ready to get it on. Um, because we cross paths and we interact with people who, um, in many cases, they, they don't have self-respect. Mm -hmm. If you're out there, if you're uh, selling drugs, if you're abusing women, if you are uh, doing any number or types of violent crime, mm -hmm. uh, predatory crime, 
probably don't have a ton of self-respect that you would do that to someone else. Mm-hmm. And if they don't respect themselves, they sure as fuck don't respect us. Right. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of these people, the environments they grew up in of no fault of their own, um, to put a gun or a razor to someone's throat or a gun to someone's head is just what they do. Yeah. It's just, it's just how they, it's the, it's the world that they were raised in. Um, it's it, many times it's what their grandfathers and fathers and brothers and cousins and neighbors and friends have done. Yeah. It's what they do. And if you're not uh, prepared mm-hmm. for that mentally and emotionally, mm-hmm. you know I, like when I go and, and I talk to law enforcement groups, I say mm-hmm. this all the time. I can, I can kind of shrink that mentality down and make it a little bit more concise. Um, if you are not prepared to have violence used against you on this job, and then if you are not equally prepared to use even a greater amount of violence to contain and control that situation, man, today's a good day to uh, go back to school or go sell used cars or yeah. uh, get your insurance license or mm-hmm. do any number of thousands and thousands of honorable ways to make a living because there's millions of honorable ways to make a living. But if you're not prepared to have violence used against you, and if you're not prepared to use violence back to put it into it, man, you know what? You're, you're, you're asking for it. You're asking mm-hmm. for a problem. Yeah. That's a really good point. Can you, will you tell Sheepdog Nation what your training is? I know you have training specifically for law enforcement. Well, you know what I do is I, um, I have a, a, a presentation, a speaking package, a couple different ones that okay. I typically deliver uh, to law enforcement groups. Okay. I speak at gang conferences. I speak at police departments. Um, and I craft those presentations a little bit to uh, the desire of whoever the host is. Mm-hmm. But typically... Um, you know, like I have a four hour presentation that, that talks about a lot of the things we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it talks about, um, the survival mindset, um, that, that we all need to build and develop and work on. Um, you know, um, we run and we lift weights and we do our martial arts classes and we yeah. go to the range yeah. and we do our combat, uh, fighting classes yeah, uh, but we have to train uh, our mind. We have to train. We have to train our, our mind to have a warrior mindset as well. One hundred percent. Train that warrior muscle. Yeah, uh, to be ready to fight back. And that's you know I talk on that. You know I love it because so one of my things so one things that my listeners know Jay is that I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty open on you know, to calling somebody on their shit. And this is, this is one of those times where it's so true. And I'd like to call every single one of my listeners who is not currently working on their mindset to start, because this is so true. Like, like you said, you were fucking four days on and next thing you know, you're shot bleeding to death. You know, if you, at that point in time, somebody with a weak ass mindset would have died. Like, you know, point blank. And then what, a year and a half later, you're shot again. Okay, let's really talk about that. Somebody with a weak ass mindset would have got the hell out of the job. <laughs> if not after the first one, definitely after the second one. Well, I'll tell you what, it is impossible to uh, speculate or anticipate every potential situation that we might face. Just mm-hmm. can't do it. But here's the thing. Why not try? Absolutely. Because we can't anticipate every potential situation that we might encounter. 
we're not going to anticipate any. Right. Like it, invent the craziest situation that you can think of the most, uh, the, the nastiest environment against the nastiest person mm-hmm. with the most despicable, vile intent towards you. And, and think through like, like, what would I do if this was, if this was in front of me, if I was by myself, if I'm surrounded by my partners, all those different things, what would I do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's always better to have a plan and not need it than to need a plan and not have it. hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And that's a really good exercise. So Sheepdog Nation, I'm going to underline an exclamation mark that. So what he just said is he said to always be thinking about what would you do if the most absolute shit show worst thing would ever happen to you on duty? And would you say off duty too, Jay? Of course. You know, when you look at like your audience, um, uh, typically out there um, are, are men and women, especially in uniform, um, they're, they're doing traffic stops, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in a perfect world, you pull a car over and you approach the car and, and you have a, uh, a peaceful occupant who uh, it, it, you have a peaceful exchange with and they give you the information you need and then you handle your business with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like like, like what, what level of preparation do you need for that other than like to be professional? Right. You need to be prepared for, uh, you know, that mom with three kids in the backseat to try to blast your ass. Mm-hmm. You need to be prepared for that little old lady uh, to stick a gun out the window in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, it, those situations that you think um, are the least likely to happen, uh, why not, why not mentally prepare for it? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're ready for it and it never arrives, you're no worse off. Absolutely. Yeah. If anything, you're just prepared. Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Jay, I would like to ask you something. Um, I watched one of your interviews and you talked about, do, do you think that people still have a hit on, on you right now? You know, um, by everything I've been able to tell and by the intelligence uh, guys in the intelligence community that I keep in contact with, there's still contracts out there, but they're, mm-hmm. you know what, they, they've never been recalled, but I don't think anybody wants to fill them. Um, no. There's no, there's no upside. There's no purpose. Um, um, other than maybe some vengeance. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, like anything with time, hatred fades. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that there's a lot of people out there that don't like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I put myself in a, a bad situation, if I put myself in the wrong situation uh, with the wrong combination of people, I could potentially have a problem. So I try to be, uh, I try to be smart about that. I try mm-hmm. to be aware of where I am and who's around me. Yeah. Uh, if I um, decide to go out Saturday night, and go drinking at the local biker bar, and then I end up getting the shit kicked out of me, I probably had it coming. <laughs> I probably had it coming, right? So I don't do that. Yeah. Um, I do what I can to avoid those situations, but also talking about mentally pre- preparing yourself, I do what I can to avoid those situations, right? But if I get cornered, if I get put in a bad spot, um, I guarantee you I'll be ready to handle it. Yeah. I'm going to try to avoid it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want that. Right. If you corner me, then you know what? All of us are going to have a bad day. Promise. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, okay. So just because 
I don't know if, I don't think that I asked you this. Can you tell us what you did specifically, like with the Hells Angels? What, what you were, you were the first law enforcement to get in with them, correct? Um, yes, to become, to be, to be a made member of the gang, right? So that was a two-year operation um, that went from zero, where um, actually there was two infiltrations within one. We actually infiltrated uh, a biker gang that went by the name of the Solo Angels that was based out of Tijuana, Mexico. We actually infiltrated that gang, uh, not to investigate them or not to investigate their crimes because there were, I mean, they were in their own, doing their own things. Mm -hmm. But we infiltrated them so that we would have credibility in the eyes of the Hells Angels that we were already bikers and that we were already in that culture and in that world. And so, you know, over the course of two years, um, you name it, and we did it and saw it. You know, I worked with a Phoenix Police Department officer. Um, we had an informant. We had some other ATF agents that, that came and went to help and assist. Um, we had a, a task force uh, of, of non-undercover people that were amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of us, especially in a case like that, no one ever accomplishes anything on their own. It's always a group effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always people behind the scenes uh, that work uh, just as long, just as many hours, make just as big a sacrifice that get zero credit for the work. Um, there was a lot of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, to be honest with you, the way that, the way that we did it uh, is we conducted uh, street theaters, which we called street theaters, which was we would set up plays and skits that we would actually perform in front of our suspects. But all the actors in the skits were law enforcement playing different roles. So in order to enhance and accelerate uh, the acceptance of my credibility and believability, I would invite a suspect to a drug deal. And that suspect would see me sell or buy drugs or a gun deal. He would see me sell or buy guns. or trafficking, he'd see me load guns and take them to Mexico, um, or an assault, or anything you can think of, anything you can imagine that might take place on the street. What they didn't realize is that the people I was interacting with were other cops. Um, and so what, what I call it is inaccurate conclusions from accurate observations. Mm. They would accurately see me in the middle of a drug deal. They inaccurately concluded that I was a drug dealer. Mm. So we were trying to do that to um, not have to be placed in a position where the suspects were dictating the terms of engagement to me. I was dictating them to them because I was trying to beat the punch. I didn't, I was trying to maintain control, Mm. which I think like that's what we do in law enforcement. We try to maintain control when the control is taken out of it, taken away from us. Uh, that weakens our ability in a lot of different ways. I was mm-hmm. trying to maintain control by um, building a reputation and having something to fall back on. When someone said, oh man, I don't know about this guy. I was in a position to say, what are you talking about? You don't know about this. Didn't you see me six months ago do this? Didn't you see me four months ago do this? Weren't you with me when we beat this guy up, sold these drugs, uh, uh, ran these guns, uh, mm-hmm. stuck this guy up? How dare you? question me Mm. Uh, but it was all it was all fake it was all counterfeit Mm. 
Wow. So, okay. So did you ultimately, what did you end up doing? Did you ultimately, what did you get, what did you do being like in there? Did you ultimately like take them down or something? Well, um, actually the finals, the case was coming to an end. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, we had one last big street theater we wanted to put off. When the, when the case first started, I asked the leadership, uh, the Hells Angels leadership, uh, that the Hells Angels in the West were at war with a gang called the Mongols, um, which is another outlaw biker gang. And um, I asked the Hells Angels, what, what happens if I cross paths with a Mongol? What am I supposed to do? Like, what's your instructions for me? Right? I was eliciting conversation from the suspects. And I was told, it's your job to kill them. That's what we do. We kill Mongols, right? So for, for an essence, for two years, I put that information in my back pocket. Right before the case ended, I told the Hells Angels, there's a Mongol down in Mexico that I found out about. And I think it's, it's my job to go down there and kill him. It's my job to like prove myself to you guys. Uh, they completely were enthusiastic about my, my offer. They gave me the gun to go do the murder. They told me how that they, they suggested how I do the murder. Um, so can you share what that was? Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Can you share what that was, how they told you to do the murder? Yeah, the, um, they, they gave me the gun. Uh, they gave me a gun that had the serial numbers removed. Uh, they said, take this thing apart and leave it down in Mexico. Don't try to bring it back. Um, and then they said, hey, when you shoot this guy, shoot him in the eye, shoot him in the ear, um, shoot him someplace where that round is going to get trapped inside his skull and scramble his eggs, you know, where, where it won't exit. You know, if you can get something bouncing inside of the skull, that's the way to do it. Don't shoot him in the forehead, shoot him in the eye, shoot him in the ear, shoot him in the mouth, shoot him in some soft entry point. Right. Hmm. Uh, so we, we took a Mongol out in the desert and we duct taped his hands and his feet together and we dug a shallow grave um, and I beat the crap out of him with a baseball bat and we shot him in the head and took pictures of it and took the, his vest back to the hell's angels to prove what we had done. Uh, what they didn't realize is that it was all a hoax. The Mongol that we killed was a member of our task force that we dressed up with Hollywood makeup and took pictures of, and he played along in the skit. And so we delivered back to the hell's angels evidence of a murder, but it was a fabricated murder. It was, it was fake. It was a bluff. And we used it to put ourselves over the top. Wow. Uh, so in the end, uh, I think we indicted close to 60 people. We had like 16 of them on Rico. We had them on uh, murder charges and gun running and drug running, and extortion, rape, and all kinds of nasty things. Right. And then mm -hmm. um, what is not, um, necessarily well-known is that in the post-investigation uh, discovery process, um, there was a conflict between uh, ATF, between the ATF case agent and the prosecutors on the release of information during discovery. And the argument on the good guy side got so nasty and so bad on actually what would or wouldn't be released that we, we, in essence, I wouldn't say we tanked our case from inside out, but we damaged it pretty good from inside out. So mm. our indictments, um, the indictments and arrests 
did not equal the convictions, in my opinion, what the convictions should have been, uh, which was, it was a little bit heartbreaking. You know, you spend two years away from your family, away from home, uh, mm -hmm. taking incredible risks. And then to have the case not uh, be prosecuted as fully as it should have because of internal fighting mm -hmm. was, was very, uh, very frustrating. But, um, you know, like, like we don't get to, you, you control what you can control. You know? Absolutely. Control that. I, I haven't met, uh, I haven't met a cop who doesn't think he couldn't have done a better job prosecuting the case. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I haven't met a better prosecutor who thought that he couldn't have done a better job investigating the case mm -hmm. than the investigator did. It's the nature of what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, let me ask you this. So do you, cause like when I look at you, Right. So you have a goatee. You've got rings on your fingers. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. So you look like a biker dude to me. Like, tell me about that. Like, did you, did you, like, I want to hear about like, cause when you're undercover, cause of, I'll be honest with you, I've never gone undercover. I don't know anything. I don't want to. That's not my thing. Um, in fact, that scares the shit out of me. I'm not going to lie because my PD wanted me to do some like undercover, like drug deals and be a hoe <laughs> and you know, the prostitute. And I'm like, hell no, I'm not doing that. Um, but my question is, is like, so do you, did you kind of like, did you learn to self-identify? Did you, did you like, did you like some of what they did? Like, well, yeah, I'll tell you this, like, like this, you know, like the rings and this, right. Um, I've always kind of been I, my success or what, what equaled success for me was what you see is what you get. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I don't talk to suspects any different than I'm talking to you or I'm talking to anybody else. There's undercovers who show up for work and they, they put on whatever that outfit is, whatever that costume is for that role. And then they go and they become that person and they're, and they're an actor. Um, for me, there was like, it just, I, I, was, I was never good at that. I just had to be me. Um, I didn't try to fake it. I didn't try to uh, uh, talk to people any different. I didn't carry myself uh, any differently in my undercover role than I do socially. Um, you know, I, 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 even in undercover role, I tried to treat people the way they treated me. You, like you treat me good. I'm going to treat you good. Um, mm -hmm. You're an asshole. Um, man, you know, we're going to have a problem because I can be the biggest dick in the world if you know, but I don't want to be right. I don't want to be that guy. So let's not go there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you're just kind of like, this is just who you were like prior to getting in? Well, you know, I, like I, I've got lots of people that don't like me. Right. And so, and I, but, and this, I think this is consistent and this is true. Um, if you don't like me now, you wouldn't have liked me 30 years ago either. Mm -hmm. Like not very much has changed. Um, mm -hmm. So you're saying, Oh, this guy's this or he's that, or this guy's an asshole or he's whatever. Like, you know what? That's probably who I was 30 years ago too. Mm -hmm. so if you like me today, we probably would have got along 30 years ago. If you don't like me today, you know, we probably yeah. wouldn't have been having beers then either. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Did you, um, now would you say going undercover, would you say, so would you say that it's changed you at all? Did it oh change? yeah. Um, to do it for, um, as long as I did and as many operations I, I over the course of my career, I was involved in over 500 undercover uh, operations. Mm 
Wow. Um, when you do it for that long, uh, to that extent, um, I really think that uh, it changed my DNA, to be quite honest. I feel like my DNA got rearranged. <laughs> I bet. Um, and I'm not an excuse guy. I'm not someone that tries to blame other people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whatever happened to me, um, I'm responsible for it. I, I, I did it to myself because I loved doing my job. Um, but yeah, you know what? When you uh, lie and when you live a lie for that long, um, it's, I mean, it's not healthy. It's not emotionally or mentally, uh, spiritually healthy to, to be that. Um, there was times um, when I was um, out of role, like at home, social, like just back in a, in a normal life, right? There was one time I remember I came home and I was writing a personal check and I signed my undercover name on a personal check. And I was <laughs> I, like, I remember I crossed it out and I was like, dude, that's not your name. Mm. No? But I, I was spending so much time in that role and I had done it for so long that um, in my mind, that's who I was. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's dangerous and it's unhealthy. And um, uh, I, I put a huge, huge amount of battle damage on my family um, because of that. Because, be, all, all of my fault, not of their fault, not of any, not of suspects fault, not of ATF management's fault of my fault. Well, why do you think it was your fault? Um, because I, uh, undercover work became my heroin. Mm -hmm. It's like, I needed it. I needed that risk. I needed that hustle. I craved it. I sought it out. Um, uh, there was a point in my career where I probably lost, um, like the common sense risk, risk assessment element that we need. Mm -hmm. um, there mm -hmm. was like, there was no risk that was too big. There was no job that was too dangerous. There was no assignment that I ever pumped the brakes on. I was all in all the time. Um, and in that mindset, um, and, and this is, this is a regretful statement to make. This is a, sh a shameful statement to make something that I am, um, I take no pride in and um, it's not easy to admit to people that you don't know. Right. But um, I just, I, 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 I wasn't, I, I put my job and my career and my ego and my legacy, I put it in front of my family. Um, my, my professional success and what I was doing, and how I was doing it became more important to me than my wife and my kids. Um, and that's a pretty humiliating statement to make. It's a shameful statement to make. Um, well, okay, you say that. Okay, but let me just tell you this. I think it's actually quite humble that you're, you can at least state it now because I'm going to tell you, especially in law enforcement, I think there's a ton of other you know, jobs and careers where this happens, but I can say that in law enforcement, because I, you know, I am one, I'm married to one and I speak to them daily. That is something that happens. And many, many will not admit it. Many don't see the problem. And so, you know, I think it's quite humbling and I appreciate you being humble enough to say that to us. Well, that's part of um, like, uh, 
like being grateful and thankful uh, for the opportunity that you've given me to be on your podcast and talk to your audience is that um, I don't I don't relish telling that story, but I think it's an important story. And I think it's a story that I tell, I try to tell with the proper amount of humility um, uh, because it is a shameful story, but it's important for people to hear because I tell that story. I'm saying like, look, um, go be great. Go be amazing at your job. Be the best that anybody's ever done it, but don't abuse um, and betray the people that love you the most. You know, the people that loved me the very most and that were the most loyal to me and that were the most supportive of me were the ones that I treated the shittiest. Mm -hmm. And, and that is very, uh, that's very regretful. I'm ashamed of that. Um, it's common. It's, yeah. I'm just saying, it's just, you so know, there was, uh, there was one event that I think, uh, well, a couple actually that encompass it pretty well, but, um, I came home from uh, a long stretch in an undercover role at one point. And my wife said, she's like, you cannot just come into this house after being gone for an extended period of time and treat us and talk to us like we're your suspects on the street. And then in my defense, trying to protect myself, I said, man, I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this on and off. People that do what I do for a living and treat it like a hobby, get dead. I have to stay on my game. Mm -hmm. she was like, Hey, that might be the truth. But when you come to this house, you better install a damn dimmer switch and turn that down. Cause it ain't flying here. Mm -hmm. um, and I cycled that over and over and put my family through that for years on end. Um, mm. And they didn't sign on for that. They signed on, they signed on to support me and they did a great job of that, of loving me and supporting me and giving me the room to, uh, to, to pursue what I wanted to pursue professionally. Yep. I made them pay for it. I made him pay for it really bad. Well, I understand. And I, and, and it's so common. So what would you give for advice for officers that are currently like doing that? Or they might not know. How about this? I'd like to hear the advice you would give to somebody who is doing that right now. I think it, it goes to anybody in our profession, not just guys in an undercover assignment, guys, um, I think that my little explanation to my wife, I think that holds true for all of us. Yep. Anybody that's out there in the law enforcement profession that's treating it uh, as a hobby, is they're treating it as just a way to pay bills, just a way to make a check, to, to make a paycheck, um, just a way to make a living. Yeah. You're, uh, that mentality is dangerous, not only to yourself, but it's dangerous to all the people that you work with. Mm -hmm. You have to be all in. You, I understand that. You have to be all in. You cannot dabble in this job. Um, people that dabble in it uh, get hurt mm -hmm. and people around them get hurt. Um, you have to be committed to it and you should strive in anything we do to be amazing, to be mm -hmm. the best ever, raise the bar. Um, Try to achieve, try to inspire the people around you to be greater and to keep up with you. And if there's someone that's out there achieving, try to keep up with them, all those things, right? Mm -hmm. Just don't, um, don't forget about the people back home, the people in the background that love you and support you and make sure that you uh, at least communicate to them 
that you understand that and you appreciate that. Um, it doesn't take a lot of time or effort to do that. Mm. Uh, and I had gotten to the point in my career, in my life, where I was never doing it. I was showing no appreciation to anybody. I, I, um, I looked at my family like I had developed this hero syndrome for myself where I was out here solving everybody else's problems, where I was confronting everybody else's problems and trying to do something about it. And I felt like their role was to support me in my role. Like that was their job. Mm -hmm. Like I'm out here trying to make things better for people. Your job is to support me in doing that. They didn't sign on for that. Mm. They didn't sign up for that. And, and I, and I got to the point where I failed to appreciate their support. Mm -hmm. Um, Take them for granted. We do that. Exactly. And that's man, that's, that's super hurtful. When people feel like they're uh, not appreciated, that's one of the most painful things to experience when you feel like you're not appreciated. So what would you tell an officer to do different? I would say, um, hug and kiss your wife and your parents and your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your kids, um, you know, communicate to them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how you feel and that you appreciate that, that, that you understand that, that our job it is distracting and it does take time um, away from relationships and it takes time away from families. Um, And that I I think, I think there's a way uh, to actually uh, inspire like more support from them. If they feel that what they are doing is appreciated and acknowledged um, versus feeling like, man, this, this dude doesn't even, he don't care about, He doesn't care what we do or what we say or where we go. Um, He's doing his own thing Um, because I, um, I, I let, I let my ego, my ego got out of control. I was chasing, I was chasing what I believed to be was a legacy Mm -hmm. and we all experience it right in this job. The most dynamic officers, the most dynamic cops in any of our departments or agencies uh, that hero that did something amazing or has an amazing career, at some point, that man or woman leaves the job and the next day, everybody's just back to work. Everybody's still doing it. You know, most of the time they're arguing over like who gets the stapler off your desk or your desk chair. No shit. It just moves on. There mm-hmm. is no legacy to be left. No. There is no leg- legacy to pursue. Just go out and do the best you can Um, because like we get forgotten on this job, even by our peers that admire us, we get forgotten by them very quickly. Agreed. I fully agree. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that because there's a lot of officers and I think you're absolutely right with what you said. If we look at every single police department, you know, we all have the, the officers who's going to be Superman or Superwoman, right. And who are number one. And, you know, it, it is a it very, I am very curious to see what their lives are like. What are their personal lives like? Cause, and you know, so it's, it's finding the key to balance to the balance, you know, it's finding key to balance. Now, do you have any advice for people like, you know, you said something about like, um, you know, you, it's not a flip. I can't turn it on and off. Did you end up finding some sort of balance? 
I did, but I didn't find it on my own and I didn't find it uh, willingly. Um, I basically had those elements of the job that I loved taken away from me um, where I couldn't do it anymore. Um, And the truth be told is that I would have never quit on my own. I would have never stopped chasing undercover work on my own. And when I was pulled out of that lifestyle and pulled out of that uh, world, I was super resentful about it. I was very, uh, I felt very much cheated by it. Um, Why'd you get pulled out? um, In in hindsight, after being removed, um, the people that pulled me out, um, like had my best interest in heart. Uh, um, I I think people around me, I think uh, people that managed me and my peers were like, dude, like you are on such a crashing road right now. We got to find something else for you to do. And I was like, how dare you say that, man? I'm the best ever. I'm Donnie Brasco part two. No one can do this as good as me. I had, I had brainwashed myself so much that I thought like that I was simply the best. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kept me alive. And it, I think it helped make me successful and it uh, heightened my situational awareness because that was in my head, but it was also very dangerous. Mm. Um, It was, it was dangerous. Not, not only uh, on a personal level, it's dangerous operationally. Um, I was making, there was a point in my career where I was making bad choices in my ability to assess risk when situations were, were confronted that should have been stepped away from, or walked away from or minimized. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I was like, man, there's no way anybody's going to let me see let, let I'm never going to show anybody or let them see me being a punk or a coward on the street. Right? I ran at everything. Um and man, there's you know what? There's you're not a punk or you're not a coward to say, hey, no, or I'm going to pump the brakes on this or let's think this through or let's talk this through or just maybe not today. Maybe we don't do this today. I completely lost my ability to think that way. Um, and here's the problem with it. If I put myself in a bad situation through through bad choices or bad risk assessment and I got hurt, um, I probably had it coming. Bad choices. What about all the people that were out there on the cover teams? What about the people that were responsible for uh, coming in to save me or rescue me from a situation that I created through a bad choice? They have families too. They have husbands and wives and kids and parents and friends. They wanted to go home at the end of the night. Mm -hmm. I was at a point where I wasn't considering them anymore. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even thinking about the people I work with anymore, about the situations I was creating like what it was going to do to them. Um, Cause they would have came, they would have came for me. Um, even if I created a bad situation for them, they would have came for me. Um, but if I get smoked in something, if I leave in a body bag, because I'm making bad choices, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But I was creating situations where people that I actually did care about potentially could have ended up that way. And it was, it, th- those thoughts weren't crossing my mind um, because I was just, I was in too deep. Yeah. And so, and so the, did the people around you see that? And then is that why they pulled you out? They did. And I was very resentful against them for a long time. Yeah. Um, until I was able to step back from it and actually do some honest self-assessment mm-hmm. and see like, um, 
how skewed my thinking had become. Mm. Um, and then to actually look back and, and like do some honest assessment and say, dude, like, you know what, check this out. You really weren't as good as you thought you were anyways. You know, mm. you thought you were really the shit and you, like you were no better, no worse than anybody else that was out there doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I stopped doing it. Other guys step in, they're doing it as well or better. Um, people you arrest, um, there's always someone ready to step in. There's, mm -hmm. there's a never ending supply of crime to be investigated. I wasn't mm -hmm. putting it into anything. I wasn't, you know, I, you, know, uh, you make a really good point, Jay. I just want to, I just need to underline that for a moment because I think, I think as police officers, especially cops who love interdiction work, right. And at the end of cover, but interdiction, um, you know, that entire category, we think that, and I'm not saying, obviously we're making a dent and obviously like we need cops out there and we need that. But well, what you said is just so true. Like you're not going to fucking end it. Like you're just not, it's never ending. So, you know, hold your horses here. <laughs> you know, um, the, the, those, uh, those cats that chased down Pablo Escobar, they got Pablo Escobar. Um, it's not like cocaine stopped showing up in America. No shit. Um, and it's not like whoever the kingpins are in the world out there now, it's not like when they're gone or eliminated or incarcerated that like, it's going to stop the flow of drugs. It's never going to stop. As long as we're willing to consume it, it's never going to stop. Right. Um, and that's, you know, but like you said, we have, there has to be us out there to confront that mm -hmm. and to check it. Um, it can't go unchecked. We, we, we are needed there um, to maintain some balance in the world, mm -hmm. uh, some control. Um, like for me, I always felt uh, it was a great sense of pride for me to feel that I was standing up for the people in my community who either couldn't or wouldn't stand up for themselves against the predators. Mm. Um, I, I, I took a great sense of honor in knowing that uh, when I had a badge and a gun, the people in my community were basically saying, um, we can't defend ourselves from this. We can't mm -hmm. protect ourselves from this. We're asking you to do that on our behalf. Please keep my family safe. Um, like mm -hmm. we're asking you to, I'm asking you to do that for me because I can't do it for myself. I took a huge amount of pride in that. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and, and all of us should, mm -hmm. all of us should. Everybody out there who's, whose community puts a badge on their, on their uniform and, and hands them a, a gun is saying, go out there and take the risks that we're not willing to take. Absolutely. Against the people that we can't defend ourselves against. Absolutely. That's the definition of a sheepdog. Yeah. yeah you know. Right on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Jay, do you, okay. I just need to ask you this and then, and then we're going to wrap it up, but I just need to ask you this because, <laughs> and this is totally like a rookie, like <laughs> a cop who has no fucking idea. Okay. But like, so obviously you were in with like the worst of the worst and you've seen some shit, right? Okay. I've got two questions. The first question is, was the Hells Angels inside, because that's a gang, but that's a brotherhood. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Can we compare that to the thin blue line? Sure. Okay. So what do you think? Like, are they thicker than law enforcement in this current day and age? Oh man. In this current day and age, um, I'm still going to hold true uh, I'm still going to say that that does not hold true. Um, I'll tell you why. 
um, here, here's where the, uh, here's where the, I think the overlap is very comparable. Um, okay. They have a, they have, they have a loyalty, they have a mm -hmm. brotherhood, they have each other's backs. Um, and they belong to something that they uh, believe in very strongly. Uh, their mm -hmm. gang, the, like we'll just use the Hells Angels as an example, but it could be any gang. It could any gang, yeah. Any, any organization that, that builds its membership that way. Um, their name and what they do and who belongs to it becomes uh, a religion to them. It's, uh, in these guys' case, more important to them than their money um, or their families or their cars or their house or their dogs or their kids or, or anything. It's, it's their God. It's, wow. it, it's, real, it's, it's spiritual to them. Oh, okay. um, I think that um, there's a lot of cops out there that have that same mentality, like mm -hmm. the profession and what they do. Um, becomes almost spiritual for them because they believe in it so strongly mm -hmm. um, that in spite of public criticism, in spite of the elements of society that hate them or despise them, just based on their profession, just based on what they do for a living, who find them repulsive, and they still get up and go to work and do what they do every day, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's almost a spiritual experience for them yeah. um, because they're doing something that they so strongly believe in. It mm. doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says about it. They're still going to go. They're mm -hmm. still going to come and try to um, fulfill that and try to live that. Um, now, th th that's, th that's much the same as in gang life. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, obviously the, the big difference is um, from the, from the gangsters element, um, it's, it's selfish. It's a, it's a, it's a selfish driven mentality. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's the acquisition of real estate. It's the acquisition of territories. It's the acquisition of money control. Um, uh, when I say real estate, I'm saying uh, gang X wants to own this neighborhood wants to own this street corner. Uh, they want to own those, that real estate, those locations, because there's, there's money to be made there. Um, from the law enforcement pers perspective, um, there's, there's not that, uh, that hate and money mentality right. that comes with it. They're, the men and women that get up and, and serve their communities, they do it for a greater good. They do it for unselfish reasons, not for selfish reasons. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good. That's a really good like explanation of that. So, okay. So like when you're in and like you obviously, so you've seen like you've been with, you said you've done over 500, um, you know, cases and stuff. So you, so you've seen all sorts of gangs, correct? Like tons. So what would you do? You like street gangs, traditional street gangs, you know, traditional organized crime, home invasion crews, uh, murder for hire schemes, biker gangs, uh, you name it, um, over the course of my career, I cross paths with it, you know, yeah. on one level or another. Yes. So like, what do you think would be like the, can you think of like the baddest gang, like the baddest gang, like they, they do like the worst, most heinous shit. Hmm. Who would that be? Um, 
So I can tell you from Maine, like they give you a minute, moment to think. I'm just going to kind of tell you like from, okay, so I, I'm from Maine. So, you know, the crime up here obviously is no Chicago. Um, but, you know, so the cops up here, like they'll talk about like the Dominican gangs. They're fucking relentless and, and shit like that. Or um, the Mexican ones, you know. Because, you know, for in Maine, we have a lot, we have like, we have the gangsters from New York City coming up and setting up shop here, the Bloods and the Crips and, and stuff like that. But I, I remember, um, you know, working a few cases and stuff and like the, and like just talking to like some CIs and shit. And they were like, yeah, they're a Dominican gang. And it's because we had a murder with a machete and shit like that. And they're like, yeah, they don't give a shit. I'm like, woo. Well, I think that's a great example. And, and so I was trying to search, um, like I can think of uh, investigations and individuals that I cross paths with that are uh, like more treacherous in my mind, maybe than the big picture of the Hells Angels, right? But yeah. you look at like, um, like, for example, like using your example, like, like the MS-13, yeah. right? Um, and we talked about how sometimes the people that we deal with are a product of their environment. They're a product of their culture. Um, in some of those Central American countries, um, human life is, there's a very much different value placed on human life in some of those countries than there are here. So when, um, when there's uh, murders taking place with uh, machetes, when you look at uh, like 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 uh, like the Islamic terrorists, right? When they're uh, sawing people's heads off on videotape and beheading people, right? For us, that's so shocking because it is uh, not really uh, part of our culture. Does it happen? Yes, it happens. From like depraved, like you know, kind of isolated, unique uh, criminals, but it's a way of life in some of those countries. It's yeah. how they handle their business and it's not unusual to them. And so for, for like, for them to hack up a body with a machete or for them to uh, videotape uh, someone having their, their head cut off, uh, it's, it, it's, it's who they are. It's what they've been brought up with. They've seen it as children. They've grown up with that. Um, you know, there's places that uh, uh, stone people to death you know, there's places where if you're caught as a robber, um, you get your hand cut off. Like for us, it's like, oh my goodness, right? It's just, it's a way of life in some of these places. And then they come here um, and they bring those ideals and those mindsets with them to the United States and implement them here. And then we're shocked and we shouldn't be. It's, 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 mm -hmm. it's who they are and it's, and it's, it's the worlds that they came from which yeah. goes back to understanding who we're dealing with mm. and going back to studying the people that we're interacting with and, and having at least some kind of uh, idea conceptually of what they're capable of. Mm. That was a really good point. Did you ever, did you ever like work with like probably maybe even in the beginning of your career, but did you ever get into a situation where you were just thoroughly like you, you saw something you saw something that just surely like, like shook you to the bone and you were like, holy fuck. You know what? I'll, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you an event that uh, uh, I, I participated in uh, from kind of from, from the outside, from the background is I responded uh, the evening. I responded to uh, 
Littleton, Colorado, the evening of the Columbine High School massacre, um, and and saw that crime scene. Right. So here's um, a, do a domestic event, uh, basically carried out by kids. You know, Eric Harris and Dylan Kleibold used guns and bombs to terrorize those kids in the in that that staff at Columbine High School, and um, it was. I, I, I wasn't a first responder to the event. I was there um, after the fact as an investigator, uh, but to see that crime scene, it, uh, like I, I, uh, I, I, I found this anger inside me that I, that I don't think I'd ever experienced before. Mm. Uh, and, and I experienced it a few times after that, um, when Timothy McVeigh blew up the uh, federal building in Oklahoma City, um, these uh, these people uh, who th and back up a, a, another little step is simple as a murder for hire investigation. Uh, people that somehow think that they, uh, based on whatever their thought process or ideology, ideology is, that they have the right to play God with somebody else's life. Mm -hmm. um, when you see that and when you see it uh, repeatedly and when you see it in these like mass murder events um, when I talked about earlier about like I felt like my I feel like my DNA has been changed yeah those are some of the events that I think changed my DNA mm, got it yeah absolutely I, I totally understand that that would be hard for anyone yeah yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, these school shootings and uh, these mass shootings and, you know, you look at the school shootings and you look at, you know, how commonplace they've become and, and babies, you know, being killed in classrooms. And then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you look at the, uh, at the event in, in Dallas, Texas, a few years ago, where the sniper just started taking out police officers. Um, yep. And it's just the way that uh, like our society and our culture, at least people within it, uh, the, just the small uh, value that they hold for humanity. Mm -hmm. is, and it's discouraging, mm -hmm. really discouraging. But like to your audience, to you and to the men and women out there, um, if, if you're not out there taking a stand against it, if you're not out there, um, trying to do something about it, confronting it, chasing it, um, reacting to it, responding to it, being proactive to try and get in front of it. If you're not doing it, if the men and women that aren't listening to this aren't doing it, who's going to? Sorry. Who's going to do it? It's true. Who's going to do it? Your dentist going to do it? No. Uh, your landscaper going to do it? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the clerk at the grocery store going to do it? None of them are. It's up to us to do it. Right. We yeah. have to do it. Yep. I fully agree with that. Really, really good. That's a really good statement. Jay, what would you, what do you want to leave Sheepdog Nation with? What do you want to say to them? Well, um, I have, uh, I, I have uh, undying uh, respect and admiration and appreciation uh, for everybody out there. Um, every man and woman who, like I said earlier, who, um, their alarm clock goes off in the morning 
or at night or whenever that shift starts, right? Yeah. And they put their feet on the ground and they're getting dressed and um, they know in their mind the world that they're going out there into. And they understand uh, the situations and the circumstances that they're volunteering, um, walking into, sometimes running towards and running into, mm -hmm. knowing that that potentially is coming. And they, um, they hug and kiss their families before they walk out the door. And they know that there's a chance that they'll never get to do that again. Mm. And they still go and do it. They still go. They pat their kids on the head and they, they kiss their husbands or their wives. And they go knowing that they might not ever get to do that again. Mm. And they still go. And I have huge amount of appreciation and respect and thanks to, to all of you out there who do that. Um, and thank you for uh, your sacrifices and what you do to keep me and my family safe and to mm. keep all of us safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jay. And can you tell us, so you have two books? I do. Can you tell us about that and tell us where to find more information about you? Sure. I have two books. Um, uh, one's called No Angel, which is about my Hell's Angels infiltration. One is called Catching Hell, which is a bigger picture kind of career type story. Um, and there's links to them, uh, to both of them. Um, I have a webpage, uh, which is just jdobbins.com. It's J-A-Y-D-O-B-Y-N-S.com. And so there's there's links to uh, like my speaking events and my books and other background information there. And so, um, yeah, that's, um, that's how people can find you. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Thanks. Jay, are you, you're on Instagram, right? I am. Yep. Okay. So um, sheepdog nation, you're going to find below in the show notes, you're going to find the information to get to Jay's website. You're also going to find his Instagram handle. Um, my listeners primarily hang out on Instagram, Jay. That's where I, I hang out all the time. So we'll, um, we'll come over. We're going to hang out with you and uh, we're going to follow you. Beautiful. You Thank you. Thank you for having me to everybody out there in your audience. Be safe, be amazing, go change the world, make good choices. And you will, uh, man, really impact people's lives and do amazing things uh, for yourself, your family, for your community, for our country, for our world. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Sheepdog Nation. We will see you next time, Jay. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you on. I really appreciate it. Sheepdog Nation, hit this one on repeat because it's got a lot of good nuggets, a lot of good things that every single one of you need to listen to. See you next time. And that was another episode of Ship Dog Nation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and let us know by giving us a rating. If you have questions that you want answered by Autumn in the podcast, submit it by going to the link in the show notes. As always, stay safe and watch your six.